Welcome everyone to another episode of the Friendly Ex-Muslim Podcast. I'm joined today by the Farus, aka Sheikh Farus. I will get to that in a moment. But just want to remind you, we are now on episode 108. Can you imagine over the 100 episodes? It's wild. So thank you for being there with me on this journey, this incredible journey from when I first left Islam until now. And I'm uh, looking forward to the conversation today with a Muslim guest. So it's going to be great. Uh, those of you who know him, um, great. If you don't know him, we will introduce him just now. And uh, we'll get into the conversation. We're going to be talking about a lot of different things today. We're going to get into some of the nuance in Islam. I'm going to be asking him some questions. If you have questions as well, if you have time, do put them in the, in the comments. And those of you who don't know, this stream will be available in podcast format. You can check it out on all of your favorite podcast apps. Just search up Friendly Ex-Muslim Podcast. And you can listen to it in your car, at home, while you're on your headphones, while you're working out, whatever. You don't have to be there watching it. So that's just to make it easy for you guys. Alrighty, so here we have the Farouz. How's it going? I'm doing well. How about yourself? Good, thanks. So for the for the um for this conversation, should I just call you Farouz? Sheikh yeah. Farouz, how do you like to be? Farouz is fine. Farouz. Alrighty. And um so let's let's start with uh your background. Could you tell me a little bit about yourself? Sure. So I in the 1990s, I had went on a religious journey, at, starting when I was 12, when a question popped in my head, uh, what would happen if I die right now? So, you know, being from the United States, first thing I did was grab a Bible. And I didn't just grab and read a Bible, I kept like a notebook. And so I had a section on God and everything from the first verse to the last verse that it said about God, I wrote in that section a section on Jesus. I did the same thing. A section on what you have to do and what you can't do. What gets you to heaven? What gets you to hell? I had all these sections and I wrote everything. And then after reading it, I looked at all of the verses side by side. And, you know, initially that made me kind of a biblical Unitarian, but I, you know, I couldn't really find um, a biblical Unitarian church, which differs from a Unitarian Universalist at that time. Um, sometime in when I was around 14, I watched an episode of Unsolved Mysteries. And I didn't necessarily have the critical thinking skills um, at that level at 14 yet. I hadn't read Joe Nickel and um, some um, David Hume and some of these other um, philosophers that helped me you know, develop some. And I saw this thing on the miracle of Fatima and I was like, well, that can't be explained by anything else but God, and it seems like on, you know, on TV, only the Catholics have miracles. So then Catholicism must be true. So then I, so I became a Catholic, but I was also like doing everything that I read in the Bibles, anything it said it can do, anything it can't do. I was living my life. I was almost hundred percent. I'm human, make mistakes, but I was trying to live it as faithfully as possible. But after becoming Catholic, I had to for me to stay, I had to stop reading the Bible because I didn't think the biblical teachings and the church teachings um, matched. So mm -hmm. I began reading other books like the um, Ascent of the Flower of Fatima, Project Pio, all these things about their saints and you know what they saw, their visions, their miracles, etc. Um, and that's so I was really devoted. I mean, I was you know in a hospital like helping old people like in my teenage years, et cetera. 
And then at some point, uh, another question came my head. And I said that if, you know, I'm doing all of these actions, but I don't love God at all. I'm just doing it not to go to hell and to go to heaven. Is God even accept my deeds? So I go to church that week and the sermon of the priest is God does not accept your deeds if you're not doing them out of love. So I said, all right, well, if I'm going to go to hell, I might as well just do whatever I want. Um, You know, but I always had that like, um, you know, what if. Um, Eventually, I became exposed. I mean, I was exposed to Islam at an earlier age because I'd read the Quran, but I'd become exposed again. Um, But more about Islam from, I mean, more about um, Islam when it was the Bible and the Aramaic. And I said, you know what, I can't prove or disprove anything um, that these people are saying because I don't know the language. So let me learn, you know, some Aramaic so that I can disprove, um, you know, these Muslims who are saying this. Um, And, you know, that led me into certain things that I actually started to see a lot of logic and some Muslim arguments at first. Um, Then eventually, like I do, I always try to argue against the point that I'm trying to believe. So I did that. Um, and I approached the Quran the same way I did the Bible was that same thing, create a list, everything it says about Allah, everything it says about the prophets, everything it says you have to do, you can't do this, that. So I approach it the same way. So I never had one of these, these understandings that a lot of people would try to get on and argue me, like with me, like this verse says this, therefore you mean this, like without looking at any other text besides that one sentence. And I always say, you know, well, the Bible says there's no God. What do you mean? Well, David said, only fools say there's no God. But if I take out the word only fools say, <laughs> the Bible says there's no God, right? So I mean, like, I, I could play these word games too. So, but then after doing that, I had realized that Islam had so many layers between the Quran, the Hadith, the Sirah, the Fiqh. Um, and then they also preserved all information, the fabricated information, what they believed from fabricated from what they believed was true. Um And so there was so much to dig through. So that's what led me um, after I converted to Islam and I was exposed, I converted to Islam in an area where I was exposed to so many different sects, groups, medhabs, et cetera, all claiming to be right. And I said, you know, there's, how how can I determine who's right? So I I really got into the study of um, traditional usul al-fiqa, which Mm. provided, methodologies to interpret and validate. And that's sometimes why some of these people get on it and like just pick out one verse of the Quran or one hadith and argue. Um, sometimes they do it with me, sometimes they do it with some of my students, which I saw in one of the com- your comments of your video last week. Um, your student was uh, yeah. commenting in my videos? Yeah, or one of one of my followers was, you know, arguing. And eventually I told them just, you know, stop because nothing you say like the person is, you know, you're arguing with is going to listen because no matter what they said, it was like, you're not answering my question. Well, here's the answer to the question. You're not answering my question. It's like, okay. Mm. Interesting. Know. Interesting. Um, so if I can just jump in for a bit. So, yeah, so right true. now, so right now, what are you, you're a t- you teach in the mosque or something? You're so like right, a teacher. Now, right now I'm only teaching um, on YouTube. So I know earlier, uh, like, in my younger days, before I had kids, I used to, you know, teach in a mosque, um, you know, run youth groups. Uh, and, you know, for a while I stopped, but people were still calling me for like 
up in the last couple of years, people started calling me from all over the world to ask mm -hmm. questions. And I, and I would answer and they said they would come to me because they know I'm not just going to give them an answer. I'm going to give them eight possibilities and mm -hmm. the reasoning and say, you know, you choose, like, I'm not going to tell you what to do. I'm just going to tell you everything that's out there and give you the freedom to choose for yourself right. or everything that I know that's out there. And they liked that approach because they felt that if they, a lot of times they just went to their local imam, they'll just say, do this or don't do this, but not know why, where it come from. Is there another option? Mm. Right. right. So someone had said, so, you know, so what? can I ask, so where, so did you study Islam formally or did you study by yourself? Are you self-taught? Where did okay. you learn the deen? Because obviously your parents are not Muslim. So you, yeah. you, you converted to the religion. Yeah. How did you find the knowledge? Where did you pick up the knowledge from? So a common, so my answer to that is both. Um, so what I ended up, you know, I would go to classes, but before I would go to class, I would read almost everything on the subject that I could get mm -hmm. my hands on beforehand. And so I started going to class and talking about issues. And then like, um, you know, met some of the issues were saying, like, they would give me one, one answer, like publicly, and then tell me behind closed doors like that, you know, not everyone is ready for this level <laughs> you're bringing. Like, you know, you're trying to go into integers when they haven't learned subtraction. Mm -hmm. And so, so like, was this at, the, so this is at the mosque, you're learning Islam, like where are you studying Islam? So, uh, different masjids. And so I had got in with, um, a group of people that were really into studying the Dean. Many of them had went overseas. Mm -hmm. I was, I had stayed here. Um, okay. and basically I was studying more like the old Ijaza system where I'm studying a medhab under one teacher. Mm -hmm. I'm studying usul al-fiqh under another teacher. But I had read multiple books before even going to that class. And then eventually, um, I also began translating when I, so I would always go find, try to find an English text first because that was my first language. And then mm -hmm. when I couldn't, then I would find the Arabic text for the higher level questions that I couldn't find in English. And then I started self-translating some of them, you know, as so well. You learned, so you learned Arabic on your own as well? Uh, both on my, I had someone teach me the basics. And then, um, you know, I learned the rest on my own and then went back, you know, to teachers. So it was kind of, uh, you know, um, I'm blessed. Okay, I don't usually say this. I'm blessed and cursed with a high IQ. So, you know, a lot of these classes, uh, I, I don't know if I'm were too slow for me. So I would just go get everything I could on my own and then go back to the class. And then so basically, eventually... Um, some of these uh, shiuk just wanted to have private classes with me, mm -hmm. so they could really just, you know, right. And this was like, um, so from from what I'm understanding, this these are probably Sufi sheikhs, right? Like you were in, was it Sufi masjids? No, 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 various. So like, for example, I learned, um, you know, Shafi'i fiqh from um, a sheikh who came to the United States from Damascus. Uh, I learned usul al-fiqa from someone who had his uh, PhD from the College of Sharia in Jordan, um, you know. And so so you keep using the word usul al-fiqa. Can you explain what that is? So usul al-fiqa is the classical methodology for deriving laws. See, in, okay. in classical Islam, um, it wasn't just like what I noticed a lot of people trying to do on the internet. This ayat says this, therefore you believe this. This hadith says this, therefore you believe this. You know, it, 
the legal system was developed over a period of time where scholars took their different approaches to how do we determine what an authentic text is, how do we interpret it, um, and it's very complex. It's not simple. And I, you know, I noticed even when I was watch looking at those comments, and that you know, one of the kids who was arguing with one of your followers was, or I don't know if it's your followers, but someone was commenting, basically, it's like I can't put you know. 600 page books and two sentence YouTube comments. <laughs> you know? I mean, it's yeah, not absolutely, absolutely. So, so, so what I'm understanding is you converted to Islam, just correct me if I'm wrong. Um, and then when you converted to Islam, you started studying it, you learned Arabic, you started studying Usul, um, you started, <clears throat> excuse me, was it other things you were studying as well, other than Usul or Fiqh? Yeah, um, but like, this was yeah. your focus, the Usul. I always came back to it because you know people describe me as like a pragmatist, you know, mm -hmm. practical, like something I can do something with. And also, I just found it like a puzzle, like fascinating, like you know. And I, you know, I think I hope to share some of that fascination, you know, with you all as well today. Sounds good. All right. So, um, we, someone was asking to kind of clarify what you said about the Aramaic. Uh, can you please ask the gentleman to ask to talk more about the Aramaic Quran? What what did you mean? Did you say uh, Aramaic? Aramaic Bible? So, Aramaic so Bible. Yeah. So Jesus, salam, you know, when he was alive, for those who believe he was alive, I do understand there are some those who don't believe he existed, but you know, for <laughs> those who believe that Jesus was a real person and alive, the language he would have spoken um, was Aramaic. Right. And so, you know, when some like, for example, when someone told me that um, you know, Jesus used the word Allah for God. I had no way to verify it or not verify it unless I was myself. Well, he used mm -hmm. the word Allah, so they're partially right, you right. know. Mm -hmm. So, well, that, it gets into an interesting thing because the Quran quotes Jesus in Arabic, but he spoke in Aramaic. But in Aramaic, Aramaic is similar to Hebrew, I guess, right? It's it's actually similar to Hebrew and similar to Arabic. Arabic like it's well. almost definitely in between. Like, is mm -hmm. you know, I would say, like, Spanish, Portuguese, Italian, Portuguese is probably the halfway in between those two. Right, right. Yeah. So you so you studied Aramaic and then now you 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 don't you don't use that anymore. I guess just Arabic now. Yeah. I mean, I just basically used I only studied what I needed to know to find out where the people were lying to me. Hmm. Is it even possible to do that? Like if I was to study Aramaic, I mean I could spend the whole lifetime go going to the Bible. I know people like Bud Ehrman the entire lives have been never mind the bible just new testament like just the new testament is his entire life and he knows greek he knows i think he knows aramaic as well were you able to really use it in any like you know like not useful way not, not in conversation but more to look things up for myself and you know mm -hmm. mm, i see i see pronounce and stuff like that right okay yeah, so do, do you do, you, do mm -hmm. you speak arabic or is it more for reading uh, more for reading, uh, you know, my wife's Arabic. And so when I go to, you know, visit her family and I go to, you know, Jordan, uh, I'll, you know, I'll use it. But then when I'm back here, I'll be using English because, you know, most of the people I hang out with speak English, but I know in there I got frustrated with no, like, all right, I gotta start, you know, using it, you know, so I guess it's, it's kind of where I, where I'm at. So when I'm immersed in it, like, you know. I mm -hmm. will use it more regularly, but when I'm here, it was just more like, uh, you know, for reading and listening, um, 
you know, et cetera. Right. So before we go to the next topic, which is going to be a solo fic and all of that, can you tell me, like, what was it that you that caused you to leave Christianity? I don't know if you covered this. What was the problem with Christianity to you? Why Why did you go from Christianity to Islam? What drew you to Islam? So, um, you know, that's a, you know, a little bit of a challenging question. So getting back to when um, someone had told me about, you know, the Aramaic and the Islam and the Bible argument and the Mus, uh, you know, the Muslim arguments, um, you know, at first I really started studying Islam to prove uh, him wrong. And so, you know, but there was one verse of the Bible that you know, I now know is the total, I don't agree with the interpretation at all now, but at the time it kept irking me. And it was Isaiah chapter 29, verse 12. Um, and it says, you know, the book shall be given to a person who can't read and he will say, I cannot read. And I, you know, that sounded to me at the time so much like the, uh, the story of the Prophet Muhammad in the cave. So I called um, the my priest at that time, Father Krupi, um, who was the Monsignor, and said, you know, what does this verse, Isaiah 29, 12, mean? And he said, I don't have my books in front of me, but it sounds like that there will be um, a prophet who will not be able to read. And when the book, you know, is given to him, you know, he'll say, I can't read. And I'll go, well, that was what was in the cave. You know, so that really got, I was like, all right, I need to go. So I, at first I started really looking at things like the, you know, the scientific, scientific miracle claims. And also when I looked at, you know, the rules of the Bible, you know, versus the rules of the Quran, you know, I said, I wrote them. So I was able to compare them all side by side. And I saw, you know, a lot more similarities. And I think at first I was convinced by the scientific miracles in Muhammad in the Bible claim. Uh, then at some point I, stopped agreeing with a lot of those claims mm -hmm. uh, i actually watched your deconversion story and i had a similar experience this was early on in my islam so you know i i kind of like you know i called prematurely accepted islam at the time you know but i was you know i felt that i had a new question what is the path to human happiness so what i ended up trying to do is just try you know every lifestyle that i could find out there or you know most of course if i felt one was like really, really bad. I was going to do it, but you know, mm -hmm. with you know, uh, so so I can just jump in there uh, before we get go ahead too far. Yeah. So your leading, your leading of Isaiah twenty nine twelve was um, which says, if you give the scroll to someone who cannot read and say, read this, they will answer, I don't know how to read. Mm -hmm. um, so to you, you connected this to Muhammad. You said that the scroll being given. Yeah, and that's, a, one, in, and that's one translation. I think the translation I was using is, you know, at the time it said the book shall be given, not the scroll, but yeah. Okay, all right. And then, okay. So do do Muslims, you, I, I've heard of, Bi, you know, Muhammad in the Bible, but I've never heard this particular verse being used to prove that point. Do other Muslims also reference this, this claim from the it was, Bible? It was popular in the 90s. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah, I mean, now I don't know. I don't keep up on the art, the argument mm -hmm. that much. And yeah. and like, what do Christians say this means when they like? What is it? What is their context? Obviously, they don't believe in Muhammad. So how do they interpret it? Yeah, I I forgot, but I remember the Christians had one interpretation, the Jewish had one interpretation, the Muslims had one <laughs> interpretation. 
<laughs> okay. Okay. So that was that. There was a scientific medical claims. Uh, you said what else was it? Yeah. So that originally had convinced me. Um, mm, me too. <laughs> yeah. And so, but then I also like was exposed to the, cause I always don't, I don't look at one argument. I try to look at multiple arguments to come to a mm. conclusion. And when I saw, you know, the, the counter arguments, I was like, well, you know, they kind of, um, kind of cancel each other out, you know? And so I became more focused on instead of what happens after death, what is the path to human happiness? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I, you know, experimented with different lifestyles, but I found that, you know, when like, uh, I was praying five daily prayers and praying in the mosque and, um, you know, I had never like, like that, you know, the, the lifestyle of Islam, like, you know, I felt like, you know, beat everything else. And that's kind of why I called my channel experience Islam. Um, you mm -hmm. know, I, I also, do, yeah, I do know that experiences, you know, are subjective and that there are other people, you know, who have different experiences. And I accepted that. But once I accepted, you know, Islam fully, and I was then I was exposed to all these different types of Islams. And I was like, well, which one is true, which actually led us to talking. Right. So, <laughs> yeah. so when you when you said my deconversion story was similar, what, what did you mean by that? So like, for example, some of the things that caused, um, you know, I, I listened to it a long time ago, so I don't remember all the details, but I remember like some of the things that you said were causing you doubts were causing that caused my doubts early on. Um, in Islam, you know, before, um, you know, before I went on this path to know every single interpretation of every single thing and where they got it from and why, and that, you know, and then, so I, I, so, my, so, but, but I left Islam, but you didn't. No, I, I get you. I get so it. how, how I'm not, I'm trying to understand how you connect, like what's the connection between my experiences and your experiences. Are you saying you, you connected with what I said to Christianity, like leaving Christianity? No, no, because I, 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 like, I would say that I started, you know, it, like Islam at some point in the 90s mm -hmm. um, and stuff like that. But I, you know, I wasn't totally in. Like, I'd go to the mosque and I would pray and I'd go to the Muslim Students Association to learn, mm -hmm. um, you know, but I was... I was trying to prove and disprove the religion at the same time. Um, and not just that, looking into everything I could. And I, you know, for me, I, I could logically unconvince myself of anything. So I took a different approach okay. to instead of just using logic, like the yin yang. So having part logic, part experience, and using the sum of the two to make my decision. Okay, can you elaborate on that, what you mean by that? Like, what is the yin and yang to you in this context? Oh, okay, so, you know, in my personal belief, like personal philosophy outside of my religious philosophy, I kind of divide um, things into experimental truths and experiential truths, right? So experimental truth, you apply the scientific method, you apply mathematics, you come out with the, um, you come out with the answer, right? Like you can prove, disprove things. Where experiential truths, um, you know, they differ from, per you know, they may differ from person to person. Um, so what I tried 
you know, to do is look at it both, you know, look at things, you know, both ways, explore all mm -hmm. lifestyles, explore all philosophies, explore all religions, um, try them out. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, kind of add the sum of the two, you know, like, um, which one logically convinces me the most and which one uh, experiential do I experience the most joy and happiness with um, in lifestyles. And then basically kind of like a summative approach um, where I take mm -hmm. from two different angles. I kind of, you know, and I, a lot of times, um, you know, I feel that some people, they just look at science and math and which is okay. And that's the only thing they judge the world. And right. I feel like some people look at religion and they ignore all science and math. And that's the way like, um, mm. just, you know, experience. I tried to, you know, sum with both and out of the sum, I ended up choosing Islam. And then once I got into Islam, it's which Islam. And that's what led to my studying. Right. When we, when we talk about experiential knowledge and you know, how, it made you happy, Islam, praying five times a day. Did you not find Christianity had that? Like as an atheist that looks at all of these different religions, I always feel like they all have that. They all have that prayer and, you know, fasting of some sort, meditation. I mean, I'm atheist. I meditate, but I don't pray. But so, I also get joy out of that and just being, you know, just being one with my thought, you know, trying not to think too much, but just being in the moment. And that brings me peace as well, without any dogma of belief in God or hereafter. I don't have to, I don't, and I don't have to do it five times a day. I just do it when I feel like it. So when I need it, if I'm stressed out, you know, can't sleep, then I do it. If I don't need it, then I don't do it. But I find with the prayer, like the literal five times a day prayer, don't you find like it gets in the way? Like if you're at the office, for example, you have to do wudu now and you, you know, you have to go in the sink and the washroom and it's like, or you're out, you know, shopping in the mall and now you have to find a place to pray. Don't, don't you find it actually causes more like, because Muhammad said that Islam is, uh, sorry, what did he say? He said to Muslims, this life is a jail and to the disbelievers, it's a jannah. Meaning that, you know, there's a lot of sacrifice needed. Don't, don't you, wouldn't you say that? Because I don't, I guess maybe through that, maybe you find happiness. Um, so I'm not going to say that there's never times that it's difficult. Never times I'm just tired, you know, and, uh, you know, and that you never experience that. Um, I think, you know, of course, as human being, you experience it, but I, going back to the summative approach, right? So the, you know, the sum is greater than you know the parts you know so all right uh, uh, some is greater than the individual part so. got it yeah okay well fair enough i mean we can agree to disagree on that um so yeah but that is your experience i mean this is what brought you to islam and you know like you said it's a combination of different things so now um let's get into um hadith and usul al-fiqh you want to tell us about um the importance of why is this important for us to know this and why do you think that um okay actually before we get there you you want to tell me about the protestant islam you have a term called protestant islam oh yeah so yeah i i developed i mean i don't think i developed i probably heard it somewhere but called protestant islam because you know the protestant reformation in christianity um was originally martin luther moving away from the traditional Catholic and Orthodox methodologies for interpreting to develop private interpretation, which ironically eventually led to, you know, some Protestants 
codifying their interpretations, but it originally was a private interpretation of the Bible. Everyone can interpret the Bible um, for themselves. So what I've noticed is that, you know, a lot of the, you know, a lot of the arguments I get from non-Muslims, and as well as I say, see from some of these more um, extremist Muslim groups who quite often have uh, some of their origin in Marxism. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so I've been doing a lot of research lately on um, Islamic Islamic extremist groups have uh, the foundations in Marxism. How's that? Um, so I've I've noticed this a lot of the post. What I've been doing is research on postmodernism, uh-huh. and also, uh, and you know, in the in the history and origin, and then so and also in doing that, um, you know, I'd found that. Um, some of the like um, certain individuals. I don't like to name individuals because some people might have an emotional attachment to them. But some of uh, you know the individuals who came up with the idea of um, you know in the 20th century that every um, that we have that there's oppression oppressed that you know the Muslims are oppressed by the West that we got to overthrow our oppressor and um, you know, and every Muslim is a disbeliever and told there's an Islamic government running the world and, and stuff like this, some of this philosophy um, that came in Egypt and some of the members were executed, but their books, um, and another in Pakistan, but their books um, had spread this ideology. Um, Are you talking about Hassan al-Banna and Said Qutb and the Islamic Brotherhood and... Mauduri. So I would say, uh, you know, I don't know about Hassan al-Banna, but, um, you know, some of the others, you know, when you look at their education and then um, the ideas, you see Marxist influence um, on on Islam, just like you see Marxist influence on a lot of the postmodernist ideas, um, you know, the dualistic worldview, where I found that through the traditional usul and the traditional madhahib, on schools of law, that, you know, it wasn't this dualistic worldview. I'm not going to say no individuals had that, but collectively, you know, it was much more complex and nuanced and detailed. And I felt that some of these 20th century movements threw off, uh, throughout a lot of the, they all, they basically, a lot of them threw out the usul for private interpretation, um, which has caused um, a lot of, uh, harm, in my opinion, but I find that uh, those who have a really negative view of Islam usually take a Protestant approach where they go to the text themselves with no usul, no knowledge of usul, and just make interpretations, whether they're Muslim or non-Muslim, and they seem to come out with this, uh, you know, this common, um, you know, extremist interpretation. Mm-hmm. Are you talking so so. I think you should say the names. I don't think there's any problem. Oh, you, you said it. I said okay. You know, um, you said you know the so the Qutubiyya and the Maududiyya. Yeah. You know, not you know that they had some, especially the Qutubiyya had some you know Marxist influence, and the Qutubiyya is the origin of, um, or is one of the origins because you know of some of the um, extremist groups that have been harming the Muslims since the 1990s. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, someone uh, mentioned this in the chat that uh, Saeed Kutub spent a few years in America in the 50s and decided it was immoral, disgusting Jahiliya. Yeah, that's true. He came back and he was like, I hate this freedom, right? Yeah, and he developed an innovation in the religion where he took the concept of restricted Jahiliya and brought it back to unrestricted Jahiliya, which was the point of Islam, and then basically argued that anyone who was not trying to overthrow governments to develop his interpretation of an Islamic government, um, you know, was not a true Muslim, was a jahil, and you know, they could be fought and and, and basically revived some of the Kharaji thought. But you don't always get this on a surface reading of the books. It's like when you get deeper, it's, you know, it's more hidden in there, but the people who are looking for it really know how to use it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, let's talk about the Hadith and the Soul Fiqh, and maybe we'll come back to this. I do have a few more questions about like ISIS and extremism. And um, like you said, it's not just, it's also like people like Sam Hiss, probably myself, maybe, uh, maybe we'll fall into this too. So I, I do want to talk about the extremism and the ISIS thing. Sure, I'll definitely the- come back to that. So yeah. to actually understand the, um, uh, I just got to do a brief um, history on the, the canonization of the Quran, because when you look at historically, right, the Quran was canonized first, you know, the, the schools of law were canonized second, and the Hadith, although they were simultaneously when canonized, were, were canonized third. Now, one could argue, so they were happening at the same time, but if you want, I'm, I just want a linear for a sake of discussion. So that, and at this time, Hadith in general, they um, weren't necessarily meant for lay people. Like lay people could read them for more like we say the barakah, the blessing of reading the words of the prophets, but they weren't really um, for interpretation. There was even a statement that there were uh, scholars used to say that Hadith is a a source of misguidance for anyone who's not a scholar. And part of the reason for that is because there could be a hundred Hadith on the same topic spread out through multiple lands and multiple collection um collections that explain one another but if you only read one without those other 99 and i might be exaggerating but 100 but like you're not gonna you might get a wrong conclusion so um and then the early sira was collected but it wasn't really canonized um because it wasn't a source of law and so the early scholars um this is another thing about early islam they preserved all they could document on a topic so Ibn Hisham, Ibn Ishaq, Tabari, they documented all they could on a topic. Um, and they documented what they believed was true. And they documented what they believed was not true to preserve everything that was being said. Like they, um, they were historians. It doesn't mean that they didn't take positions. They didn't have scholarship. They also, they collected things they believed were true, weren't true, not sure, etc. Um, So we get the compilation of the Quran. And the compilation of the Quran is where we get the principle of mutawatir or ahead. So I'm going to define those terms. Um, mutawatir is a large group of people heard it from a large group of people, heard it from a large group of people and so, spread out over so many um, locations that they it's very, it would be very difficult, if not impossible, to conspire on a lie. Um, I had one person heard it, two people heard it, three, and they passed it on. Um, and the ayat of the Quran um, they could not be ahad or singularly transmitted. So when they collected the Quran, there were certain rules. One is that multiple people had to hear it, 
from the Prophet وسلم, and it had to be there had to be evidence in writing somewhere. So I'm going to give you a concrete example. Um, Hafsa had an I'm a reading of the ayat that said, "Guard the prayer, especially the middle prayer and the asr prayer." The other companions did not know the phrase and the asr prayer, so her reading is not in our canonized Quran, but it is preserved in the Hadith literature because we accept that Hafsa wasn't lying, like she believed she heard it, but it did not meet the criteria, um, this the standard of evidence to get in the Quran. Um, but it's same thing, we know Ibn Mas'ud and Ubay ibn Ka'ab, their codices you know, didn't have 114 mm. surah, um, but, the the group the group the the large group overrode one person so when we put together the quran there was this principle of you know the the whole group is less likely to make a mistake than one individual so then um so all so when you come in so like, so what I, what i've been hearing and i'm no expert on this mm -hmm. um is i've been reading uh, some of the critical academic opinions here are that the Quran is not mutawatir. And I'm just sharing my screen here. So this is um, Majin Manputin. And he's one of the academics that has been discussing this topic. And he, he has said that um, there's a conversation going on here, but he was saying that Shady Nasser has said this as well, that all 10 readings are ahad. And that's what Majin Manputin is saying as well. So... I think that this idea that the Quran, all of the ten kirat are mutawat is actually disputed. I don't know if you disagree with that, agree with that. I know that some people say it, say it's mutawat, but I do believe that some of the class, not classical, some of the modern Islamic scholarship on this topic disagrees. So I'd, I'd have to read more into um, what you're talking about in order to give an educated um, comment. Okay. Um, but I will say there is a part of me that's skeptical and here is my skepticism because you know you know from your time like as a muslim right when you pray in the masjid you know and you're reciting certain part of the quran you know and someone makes a mistake people will um correct it so there had to be you know enough people reciting the quran you know in the early days um you know. Yes. But the thing is, the problem is that some of the earliest manuscripts seem to differ and in significant ways. So one, I've made a video on one of the topic, one of these issues, which is the Sana wow. manuscript. Yeah, the Sana manuscript in particular, which, again, if you look at Majin Ranputin, what he says is he says it was a companion codex because at that time for you to get a full palimpsest, I don't know if I'm saying the word right still. Um, it was, you require, it, it's not, not some random person can't just get that. It requires a significant amount of investment to have one of these things. And so with the Sana manuscript, we have this subtext that using ultraviolet light, we're able to read the text. So it appears that very early on, the Quran was going through a transformation. And at some point, obviously by Uthman's time, you know, they finalized it and they said, okay, this is what we're going to, you know, go and send everywhere. Um, but there was a period, I, I'm skeptical, especially with some of the things that, that have been coming out. You know, Yasir Qadi has kind of openly acknowledged that 
And he he follows Majin Man Putin, by the way. And Majin Man Putin is going to be on Myth Vision podcast. Myth Vision was here in the chat a few a while ago. Um, he's going to be talking to him about some of these issues. So so basically, what I'm understanding is that like the modern academic scholarship is saying that the Quran is not as well. It depends what you mean by preserved. If you're okay with there being multiple variant readings and you you still consider that preserved, that's that's different. Yeah. But in terms of like there being right. one dot for dot, the dot for dot for sure is not preserved. Like that for sure, I think everybody agrees. Only like real dogmatists people would say, yeah, dot for dot is preserved. That's not. There's no way. There's no way dot for dot is preserved. But yes, when it comes to like, but then the problem is there's like you know different phrase ordering sometimes the meaning changes. I think you had a video on this as well where how you do wudu can change as well. So to me, that's not preserved. I Do you see I, that as preserved? So, yeah, so that, like, that's interesting because the, yes, I, so I actually do discuss, because I had learned this early on. So, you know, with some of these things, um, there's a couple, um, you know, modern scholars that I, I feel are probably two of the, most misunderstood people um, when they speak. Um, and I think that tends to happen with people who are very highly educated. Um, and they say things and they like, they have an understanding and other highly educated people can understand them, but then regular people hear it and like, it really, um, you know, bothers them. And uh, so like, for example, you know, I knew about the multiple readings early on because it's one of the conditions to be a mujtahid mutlaq, um, which is a, an absolute jurist that you're capable of starting your own school and um, creating your own usul. It's a, you know, it's a very high level. Um, but one of the conditions is that you need to know the, you know, the differences between the ahruf and kiraat because they can make a difference in a ruling like you brought up the one on um, wudu. Like, and so in the schools of fiqh, you know, it's, um, you know, it's agreed upon that those um, ahruf and kiraat are a source um, of that you derive rulings from. Right. But people don't even know what ahruf even means. <laughs> no. Yeah. No, I, There's like, what, 30 different opinions or something. Not 30. I mean, but like, is it? Is there it actually like... might be more than that. But yeah, there's a lot of like, yeah, that that is subject to a lot of. Um, you know, interpretations and I mean, I, I, you know, I've surfaced it. I haven't got into it on the deep level that I see people like, uh, you know, Farid and Yasser Qadi. Um, ah, Farid, Gangutali. Farid yeah. is the one who caused this whole thing. He's the one that leaked the emails of Yasser Qadi to the public. Oh, so, see, I, yeah, I, I didn't um, know that, um, you know, so I, you know, uh, but um, I it's not an issue that I totally um, want to discuss. I think it's gonna yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm not an expert on it either, so yeah, yeah, we'll continue. So okay, because I just brought it up because you mentioned yeah, no, and the Quran, and I had in my mind that the Quran is not mutawatir, so I wanted to just bring yeah. that up. Yasakari okay. says it's all. He said all the kirat are jumbled up together than what we have today. Like he literally said, they're all jumbled up together. We don't know which kirat is coming from where. It's all jumbled up and. That's what we have. So, but yeah, you're right. This is not really the, the topic today. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, we were focusing actually a little more on hadith uh, originally, but the, the mutawatir versus ahad was important to introduce. 
Uh, so the schools of law disagreed on which hadith they used and apply based upon principles within that school. So, and this is where, when, you know, I hear like a lot of these, uh, you know, some people getting on my channel, you, you're a Muslim, you believe this because this hadith says, and like not even understand, you know, the, you know, where the hadith is in the collection, what its interpretations were. And, and when you try to introduce that discussion, they're like, you're no, I'm not dodging. There's prerequisite knowledge. Like if I was going to, you know, you know, I have, um, a higher degree in physics. And I was like, if, you know, and I use a lot of physics examples and I know some of my students now do too, but if I, you know, we were going to get into, and I, um, you know, certain levels of physics, like there would be certain prerequisites. You don't learn air resistance before you learn Newtonian systems. I mean, it's just the way it is. Um, and I, you know, like, so the Hanafi school, which is the first school. So they accept hadith that are mutawatir, um, and Mashhur. So Mashhur is something that was famous, well-known um, at the t at his time, which he was a tabi'i. Um, um, so he was the second generation of Muslims, but the, kind of the end of the second generation, right before the third. Um, and he did accept Ahad Hadith, but he had conditions, okay? Um, so one is its application does not violate the principle of harm outweighing the benefit or the reciprocation of harm. And it can't go against the arm of the Quran. So for example, there's a hadith um, that is in the collections that it states... Sorry, that, I was muted. I didn't realize. Are we, we're talking about the Hanafi school of thought right now? Yep. So the Hanafi school of thought is one of the first schools of thought in the Sunni jurisprudence. It's the one that's most popular among Desis, Indians and Bangladeshis, right? And it's a school of thought that you, that basically, actually you're probably gonna talk about this, but it, it, it emphasizes less Hadith, right? And more Qiyas. Yeah, um, I, I'd say that's somewhat fair, but even when I started really getting into it, they do have Hadith usually for everything they say. Um, but, you know, they would put the principle, they saw the Quran, is definitive we call dalil al-qata'i clear-cut evidence definitive evidence right so they felt the quran is um and certain hadith are but other hadith they had principles for so we think about um the you know the uh, some schools of islamic law um did not believe for example that a non uh, a muslim gets the death penalty if they kill a non-muslim where the Hanafis said, you know, no. First off, the Am of the Quran says life for life. It doesn't. Am means. Uh, sorry, the general state, the general meaning. Okay. Um, there's Am and Khas, general and yes. specific, right? So the, the general of the Quran states life for life. It doesn't state Muslim life for Muslim life, non-Muslim life for non-Muslim life. And they said that also the. But doesn't that, it, doesn't the Quran say like, uh, like slave for slave, something to that effect? Yeah. The Quran puts slaves below you, uh, like free humans. Yeah. And yeah, and to and to be honest, I don't talk like that one. Um, past the surface level, I don't have a like large knowledge of that. It's the detailed interpretations of that ayat. Um, I just haven't you know studied that one in depth yet. Um, and I don't like to speak about something that I you know don't really know. Like, I don't like to make up answers to sound you know like. I, I notice that happens a lot in debates between Muslims, non-Muslims, Christians, Muslims. It's like everyone has to win and make up an answer, even if they don't know, and then people look it up later. So it's just not my style. 
if I don't know something, I'm going to say I don't really you know know the details. But yes. the in the Hanafi, they felt that in in their interpretation, the Amr of the Quran is life for life. It doesn't differentiate Muslim from non-Muslim, and also they felt the print they have the principle of um, no reciprocation of harm. Uh, which all of them have, but part of their interpretation was if this hadith was allowed to be applied, it would lead to, um, you know, harm in the world. So I want to know where this came from, this no reciprocation for harm. I haven't heard this before. So where, there's where did the scholars come up with this from? There's an ayat of the Quran and there's a hadith. So the ayat of the Quran um, says about um, alcohol and gambling, that there's harm in it and there's benefit, but the harm outweighs the benefit. So based upon that principle is that when the harm of an action, the potential harm of an action outweighs a potential benefit of an action, a Muslim shouldn't do it. And that may change over time, for example, with smoking cigarettes, from, you know, whereas the early scholars didn't see it as harmful as the modern scholars quite mm -hmm. do because we know more now. Mm -hmm. um, so the other in the Hanafi school, if a companion narrated from the Prophet but then acted against that narration, they did not see that as um, something we should act upon. They saw it, you know, as potentially abrogated. So, for example, there's a hadith of the Prophet where it says, "If a dog licks your plate, wash it seven times and one time with earth." Mm. Now. The different medhabs had all had different interpretations of this, but according to um, the Hanafis, is that Abu Hurairah narrated it, but he didn't. He acted. Um, he didn't act upon. It, he acted differently. So they um, used the standard of three times for washing, as opposed mm. to seven. You know, plus the earth. So, so this is a very good question by my good friend Apostate Aladdin. Shout out to Apostate Aladdin. Check out his channel too. He's a cool dude. I love this guy. Okay. Anyways, so he's asking this: Was this rule about no reciprocation of harm extracted from the ayah about the alcohol and gambling with his benefit and harm? There's, there's that. There's also another hadith. Thank you. I forgot the other hadith. Um, which is there's a harm there's uh no harm or reciprocation of harm uh you know and that's one of the famous hadith um in islam and you know some scholars um derived a a principle from that of law mm -hmm. interesting to me as a humanist i would just say that that just makes sense we don't need the quran to tell us not to harm other people golden rule sort of thing right like to me, this is kind of one of the issues I have with with any religion, especially Islam, is that the Quran itself says that whoever kills a believer, like he will go to hell forever and Allah will be angry with him. But why does it emphasize? And, and of course, there is another verse that says it was narrated to the children of the uh, the Jews, that children of Israel, um, Ben Israel, that whoever takes a life is like he takes all of mankind. So it quotes the Talmud. But like, why does it, you know, do we, as we humans, wouldn't we be better off just, you know, treating everyone the same, regardless of whether the believer or disbeliever, you know what I'm saying? Like, so that, that actually answers, I, I understand what you're saying, but it's, it's also very um, detailed and nuanced because the Prophet dealt with a whole bunch of different types of people, Muslims, non-Muslims, etc., and some cases he treated people the same and other cases different based upon the situation and based upon, um, you know, what 
he knew. So you'll sometimes you'll see like this is I'm kind of getting off topic, but I could tie it in. Mm-hmm. You'll see one person come and say, you know, what is the best of actions? And I'll give one answer. And then another mm-hmm. person come and say, well, what is the best mm-hmm. of actions? Another answer. Well, you know, I, I kind of looked at that, that he was more like a doctor or a coach. Right. So, you know, he knew the person coming to them. And maybe they had already, they had mass and, you know, I'm not the only one to have come up with this. You know, you'll find it in, you know, classical, you know. Yeah, I've heard this example. I've heard this too, because why is it, people are asking, why is it the prophet said one thing to this person, one thing, and it's the same question. So the challenge then to Muslims is to know, well, what's the context? Who is the person asking? And because I'm not asking, so how how does it apply to me? Right? And how do Muslims come up with the answer to that? I guess that's what usul of fiqh is, that the, the attempt of human beings, scholars, to try to come up with the rules for how to live your life based on what this man in the 7th century lived and said and what is reported that he said and what, you know, that's when we get into the hearsay versus whether he actually said it. Um, but this is what usul of fiqh is all about, right? Yeah. So couple, two more things about the Hanafis with their hadith. Mm-hmm. So in the Hanafi school, a hadith could be weak but if the companion acted on it, then it would be accepted. So an example of this is Abu Hanifa actually got to see at least one companion pray, right? So there's there's hadith with praying up with your hands below the navel, and it became controversial, I know, you know, in the 90s and 2000s. Oh, that's the Hanafi style, like way below, right? Eh? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I know Sheikh Albani did a critique on how all yeah. those hadith are weak. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, but in the Hanafi school, even if the Hadith are weak, the companions acted upon it and they weren't going to do something that went against the Prophet Wasallam. So they accepted that as, and the Hanbalis as well, you know, um, with that ruling. And then the last part, um, the Hanafis, if a Hadith goes against an analogy from the Quran, um, then they... Uh, you know, didn't now doesn't mean they've rejected it, but they didn't utilize it for law or didn't act upon it. And so sometimes when you hear that the hadith is sahih, it's my madhab that's accurate, but it doesn't necessarily always mean that the scholars within that school of law would act upon it when against print the legal principles. So, and this had precedence from Ibn Abbas. Uh, there's actually a hadith in Ibn Majah um, that is classified as authentic. Where um, you know Ibn Abbas did not go, you know Abu Huraira narrated um, a hadith to him, and Ibn Abbas, you know, utilized analogical reasoning to state basically, you know, I'm gonna, you know, that not, you know, not to narrate this. Your basically your explanation, you know, it, it doesn't make sense. I don't have a better way to say it. I know that, you know, I might get canceled for saying it that way, but, you know, it is. Canceled? <laughs> no. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and Aisha, like, for example, there's there's hadith where it was reported to her um, about the dead hearing and the punishment in the grave um, from Ibn Omar. And she said, you know, Ibn Omar doesn't lie, but sometimes the word is here. And then she <laughs> quoted an ayat of the Quran as the reason so, um, so there was this, you know, in the Hanafi school, there was that the, you know, the Quran takes preference mm. over a hadith that they feel there's a conflict of evidence. Mm. So um, someone's asking, do you, are you Hanafi? Do you follow no, a particular school? No, I'm not Hanafi. I, I would say I lean 
um, I, I guess I'll say what I lean towards towards the end because I'm afraid if I say it before and I without my explanations, <laughs> it might you know it might get misinterpreted. Okay, oh, you want to tell us later? Oh, yeah. cliffhanger! <laughs> you guys have to stay and wait to find out. <laughs> so, um, you know, in in the Maliki school, uh, we get in the Maliki school. So they have a principle that the practice of the people of the Medina at the time of the Tabi'in is mutawatir and therefore takes precedence over the Ahad Hadith. So for example, there's a Hadith about not fasting on Fridays, but Imam Malik saw some of the scholars of the Tabi'in in Medina fasting on Fridays. So he considered that Hadith to be abrogated, you know, based upon that. Um, as well as praying with the hands on the side. I know it's in some books that he was beaten, but if you read Amudawana of Qadi Sahnun, Qadi Sahnun, who's the top student of Ibn al-Qasim, narrates on his authority, who's and Ibn al-Qasim is one of the two top students of Imam Malik, narrates on his authority, you know, that people used to pray with their hands at the side in the time of Medina. And this also became the, okay. the medhab of Imam Laith, who is so we're no talking problem. about like the Malikis, they play it like this. Yes. Okay. So so in Islam, people some people might not know this among my viewers, that there's different ways to pray this like, among Sunnis. Again, there's four schools of thought. Um, and then Salafis, they move their fingers. I don't know what, what schools of thought move their fingers while the do you know do some of the schools of thoughts move the fingers? Or only Salafis. I, I I'm not sure. And I have to would have to look that up. And I know the Malikis hold their finger out straight the whole time. Um, I wasn't, you know, sure. I know, you know, that so, from the Prophet's prayer from Sheikh Albani, yeah. but I don't remember seeing that in the other four schools, but it doesn't mean just because I didn't see it, it's not there. But I want to ask you about the, you mentioned about the punishment of the grave, grave, Ijab al-Kubur. This is something that I was surprised to find. Well, first of all, I didn't even, it's not even in the Quran. It's nothing in the Quran talks about this, but then in the Hadith, it talks about this special punishment in the grave because I, I remember asking my Sunni friend when I was learning about Islam, well, what happens when you die? He's like, oh, yeah, there's a punishment in the grave. I'm like, oh, there's a punishment in the grave, yeah. But apparently, some people don't accept it because it's an ahad hadith. So, like, for example, Hizbut Tahrir, which, again, I find it weird that this Islamist organization cares about things like this. But they officially do not believe in punishment of the grave <laughs> because it's an ahad hadith. Yeah. What do you, what do you think about punishment? So they Sorry. derived that from the Mu'tazila. Actually, you know, we're going to get... When we get to the section on hadith and aqeedah, I'll get more into that. Okay. Yeah. So, so, so the punishment and the grave thing, one more last thing. Sure. I find it strange that we don't know. I mean, there's one narration. There's, I mean, not one narration, but there's an ahad narration about, or ahad narrations about this thing that some Muslims believe it's true. Some Muslims don't believe it's true. It's not in the Quran. What do you think about this? Do you, do you find this problematic at all for your religion to have things like this in it, or you, you're not really bothered by it? So I, I actually have a whole section that I have prepared. Like, okay, <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Okay, we'll get to that. Fine. Yeah. I'll let you continue. Okay, go ahead. So the last point on the Malikis is that, because I remember um, Ibn Tamiyyah actually has works where he recognizes this approach in Ijtihad, although he doesn't necessarily use it himself. He recognizes it as valid. And I know, you know, a lot of people like to refer to Ibn Tamiyyah, you know, to say, you know, certain statements. But Ibn Tamiyyah, you know, and it's been, I think this work has been translated into English as well, or at least part of it. Um, getting into Shafi'i. So Shafi'i does not differentiate between Mutawatir and Ahad. Um, he 
He said his thing is if the practice of the people of Medina is mutawatir, so is the practice of the people of Mecca. So he did not consider, you know, the practice of the people of Medina to take precedence over the singular hadith. So, so just to expand on this a bit, what we're saying is there's two. Okay, it's more than two types of hadith, but like generally speaking, there's hadith which are mass transmitted, there's hadith which are not mass transmitted, and by not tra mass transmitted, what that means is at least one place in the chain of narration, there's a gap, or there's only one person, and not a gap. Gap would be that it would be disconnected, right? I think mm -hmm. it's. Malkuf or something, but we're talking about hadith that that are, that have a full chain, but at one point in the chain there's only one person. So now we have to, you know, the that makes it like a weaker sort of narration because we don't know for sure what Muhammad really said. We're going based on this guy said that he heard from this this person, we heard from the wife of the prophet, we heard from the prophet, and this one guy in the middle, well, is only he's the only one person in the chain, which means the entire thing depends on him because if he lied. Then the the whole thing is a lie, right? Lied or the ears mis were mistaken, as Aisha said. Um, does that not concern you that like the this religion is based on a lot of hearsay? Like, isn't that troubling to you? And and most like many Muslims actually are troubled by this. They don't know like which hadith is good, which is bad. How does that? How do you sleep at night with this? So so there there was there actually was a time and early on when I said that like um, you know when I was going through my period of doubts that you know. That was um, a concern. I think the more the more I studied and compared, um, and just you know, really just fell in love with reading the different interpretations and how they came up with it. And I, you know, I started to see it, you know, kind of as a strength because in classical islam you really learn the details of nuance which i feel a lot of these protestant islams that i call it <laughs> you know they lost yeah. i mean and, and i and i think that's why that there's this period of like intellectual boom in the muslim ummah um you know some of it was traveling and learning from other people and you know syncretizing ideas and which is i you know I also have a degree in history on top of my degree, um, you know, uh, physics. Yeah. On top of my graduate degree in physics. Um, so in, in my studies of history, what I think I just found is the interconnection. And that's why, like, I think when people say, you know, well, the Americans did this and the Europeans did this and the Muslims did this and well, they got it from this. And like, as you start studying, you realize that everyone basically gets everything from each other and builds on it. And when you have societies yeah. in isolation, yeah. Um, you know, they don't pro they don't progress. Um, and I think that part of, you know, the reasoning was just as deep. One was the deep study into law um, and then the complex usul, and then also the learning from other people and the syncretizing of different ideas led to a period of the golden age um, of Islam and or the golden age of the Muslims. Right. Because some of the people who made these discoveries were Jewish. Some of these people would, be, you know, um, you know, were philosophers that some now would consider heretical, like, but, you know, they all, you know, and some were classical Muslim scholars, but they all really just studied these different fields and shared it with each other. And, um, you know, it led to progress and, mm -hmm. you know, eventually, you know, going away from that led to regress and that's right. kind of the cycle of empires. Yeah. Yeah. 
Okay, let's continue and yeah. I'll ask you questions as we go. Sure. So the Han Valley did not differentiate um, between the Mutawatir and Ahad and would even use weak hadith over qiyas, over anal analogical deductions, as long as they are not fabrications, known lies. Mm -hmm. Now, some differ over whether the weak hadith that Imam Ahmad used were considered weak or hasan. Okay. So the more classical, traditional, orthodox, you know, mo I was, the majority from what I've read, consider the weak, like to be baif, you know, weak to have been, you know, Imam Ahmed would give them preference over analogical deduction. Um, the branch of Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahab uh, of Handalism, you know, consider, you know, was of the position that um, it was Hassan and not weak. Um, Sorry, he's saying every single weak hadith was Hassan? No, no, no. So what I'm saying is, is so it's one of the principles in the Hanbali Madhab that um, if you didn't find an answer in the Quran, you looked for it in the Hadith. Yes. It could be an, Even, authentic, yep. be an authentic Hadith or it could be a weak Hadith and you would take the Hadith over the analogy. That's a principle. Right. Unlike the Hanafis, which would take the Qiyas, the analogy over the Hadith. Yeah. And so... But there's a debate over whether, you know, it they were weak hadith or whether they were Hassan hadith. And I'm going in about a minute, I'm going to get into the definition. So I'll just like say that for now. But, um, and I'm going to give you a concrete example. So Ibn Hajar Haithami, who was a muhadith, um, he might say a hadith is sahih. Um, and you might see Sheikh Muhammad Nasr al-Din al-Albani, a hadith of the 20th century, say it's weak. So the branch of Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahab, they would take the conclusion of Sheikh Albani over Ibn Hajar Haithami um, often, but some of the more traditional would take the grading of um, Ibn Hajar Haithami over um, Sheikh Albani. And uh, the, the, the branch of Muhammad ibn Abdul Wahab and Sheikh Albani, they consider acting on a hadith that their scholars declared weak as an innovation, even though other scholars might view that hadith as authentic. But then the other, you know, in the other branches, if there's a difference of opinion amongst scholars over whether the hadith is authentic, you can't say the conclusion is innovation. But in the um, sounds terribly complicated. <laughs> and, 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 so, and yeah, and and that's my like, that's my point. It's like so sometimes when I see people asking ask my students to put all this in like two sentences in a YouTube comment, like you know, I mean, like, but isn't it is it not unnecessarily complicated? Like, does it need to be religion need to be so convoluted that if there's this hadith that's ahad and this scholar says it's Hassan, but this scholar says it's weak, therefore it's not innovation because one of them at least said it was Hassan, and it just sounds so complicated. It, like, it seems like getting to what Muhammad really said and did seems to be a very difficult project. It's not at all trivial. The Quran, okay, Allah sort of preserved it, but the hadith, it seems like it's not at all preserved really well at all. Or maybe it is. I don't know. Maybe you disagree with me. It is no, no, and and it is very it is very complicated. And that's why like I kind of um you know am passionate about just exposing like the world to the complexities. Yeah. So they can make an educated like decision um 
on Islam that it's not just, you know, I saw, uh, you know, this guy say this and therefore this, or there's this quote in this. Um, that's not how the Muslims for a thousand years, like, right. had understood this. Mm-hmm. And that, that's, so the that's main, yeah. what I want to, not necessarily that everyone has to accept Islam or everyone has to agree with me, but at least see that, you know, this is a lot more difficult than I thought. And, you know, yeah. maybe I should look into it before just saying, you know, this is the way it is. You're not practicing real Islam unless you're doing such and such an action. And yeah. Yeah, there's no real, I mean, real Islam is a loaded term, right? Real Islam. Uh, are we going to get, I want to talk about the extremists too. I, I do have some questions on that. There's a funny comment here. Can I choose my punishment in hell? I prefer to be lasered rather than burned. Of course, there's no, I don't believe in hell. I don't know. You can make an appeal to Allah. So, yeah. So if you can, I think I could, if I could just take five minutes yeah. and wrap up like the, the main idea of sure. like this presentation for lack of better words okay uh, good. my steparaneous notes so a simplified um version um for people who don't know on um, hadith um and this is an elementary version you know it's like the five plus five is ten um hadith's chain is considered authentic or sahih uh, when the narrators were known to have met each other were not known liars were not known major sinners and were known to have good memories. Now, you can get into details where, you know, Nasa'i said that, you know, if they lived in the same town or were in the same town, you can assume they know each other. You know, that gets into the differences, gets more complex. Um, Hassan meets all of the above, but the, the they were known to forget or make mistakes regarding their memory. Um, weak is often an unknown person in the chain a break in the chain or someone with a weak, a very weak memory. And Fabricator is a known liar. Like this guy just straight made it up. He makes up a whole bunch of stories, you know, like, and there is another section we don't um, call Matin criticism and hidden defects, which, you know, is, I won't say it's a lost art, but. Matin is basically the body of the Hadith. Yes, the text. So a Hadith has two parts. The text is what it says. And then a chain of narration you know, Mike heard from John, who heard from Abdullah, who are, you know, etc. Um, now, in Sunni Islam, this applies to all but the companions. So all the companions in Sunni Islam are considered honest, incapable of lying, and not major sinners. Mm-hmm. Um, in Shia Islam, uh, they apply the same principles uh, to the companions um, as they would everyone else. And then, so the Zaydi... Um, Chia would um, apply the same. And then in certain of the Jafari, they take it further and basically had anyone who fought against Ali and his children, you know, mm-hmm. Hassan and Hussein, their hadith are rejected. The Ibadi, they have a methodology. I don't have enough knowledge to speak on it. Um, and then you have the Quranists, which reject all hadith. <laughs> now, hadith and theology are aqidah. So, um, so I have, have a question about that before you yeah. jump on. Um, so in regard to hadith, it sounds to me, uh, maybe this is a dumb question. Maybe you can tell me if, if I'm way off here. It sounds to me that hadith is a sort of subtractive process. And what I mean by that is you have a whole bunch. Here's a, here's a boatload of hadith, hundred thousand hadith. Now you figure out which ones are bad. Okay. We're going to pick out this one. This guy never met this guy before. This guy's a known liar. This guy claims he was alive, but he wasn't even in the same town as that guy. 
you you pluck them out and then you're left with a bunch and you're like okay the rest are good is that is that correct do you think would you uh, I, anything? Know, possibly i mean I, i've never thought of it in that um you know at first glance it makes logical sense but i don't want to agree without reflecting upon it further but i'm not yeah, going to my my that. my concern with hadith has always been that you it's this entire thing is it's a be, it's it's a lot of guesswork involved and i mean it's great that we have anything at all about muhammad i i'm i'm actually glad that we know some things about him and the, there's obviously some scholarship involved as well but how would you know if someone said that I narrated like Abdullah heard from you know Michael who heard from his son who heard from the prophet. How do you know that I just didn't make all of those things up? I met this guy. We know we know me and you met. We know you have a son, and so. But how do you know that? How do you know that I didn't just make up the entire thing? How do scholars know that? Is it just they just trust him because he's a he's a trustworthy narrator and he you know he met this guy. And so he and he claimed this guy actually said this, and this guy never denied that he said it. So it must be true. Is that kind of like, or is so, there more to it than that? There's there's a little more to there. There's more to it than that. Um, so one is you know you had people who who's basically um, you know wrote biographies, and you had people who basically I don't say job, but I don't have a I can't mm. think of a better word profession. <laughs> yeah, not a profession. I not get paid for it, but like basically, their life was basically to to find things wrong, um, you know, the critique, and then like, if you couldn't, so I guess that's that subtraction, but also there's comparing the chains. So if you get uh, 17 different chains on, you know, one hadith, um, you know, you would like, you can compare them and, and compare others. And, and it seemed to be an arduous time consuming process when you really look at like the length of, these biographies and all the work people put in and whether or not you believe in Islam, I think that, you know, my opinion, objectively, you at least have to respect the effort. <laughs> yeah. But I, I don't respect the effort in a sense that I feel it's wasted effort because I really don't care to that extent what Muhammad said and did, unless I believe he's actually a prophet and therefore his words are heavier than gold. Um, in the sense that, like, you know, when we're talking about morality a bit earlier, my morality is based on right and wrong and things that I can measure. I don't really care what some guy said 1,400 years ago or 2,000 years ago or 3,000 years ago. Although I do care, but I mean, I'm not going to, you know, epistemologically put that at a higher level just because a certain person said it. Now, the problem, I'm not problem. I mean, to me, it's a problem. The claim is Muhammad spoke to God. So his words are, again, above gold, like they're worth gold. So whatever he said, Muslims will will study it, analyze it, dissect it, and, and take, you know, the way that he lived and what he said and what he did to such an extent that I've heard that some people, some Sufis, they don't eat watermelon because the Prophet never ate watermelon. I mean, that's going to an extreme. Yeah. But, but the point is that do we... You know, okay. Anyways, we, we we can agree to disagree on this because obviously you're Muslim, I'm not. But just just my thoughts on that. You know. No, I understand. Yeah. Um, and you know, a lot of the thoughts there's not there's no certain things you know that went through my like head before. And I also, like I said, I, whenever I examine something, I also try to disprove it. Um, but I also and I try to get rid of bad evidence versus good evidence. You know. Um, but we can get into that 
later. Um, so the Hadith and Theology, two minutes. So the Hanbali and Zahiri, even though Zahiri is more of a school of law, they had principles that apply. Both Mutawatir and Sahih Ahad Hadith are considered definitive as evidence, 100% clear cut. So um, the only uh, difference is they feel that the rejection of Mutawatir makes one a non-Muslim, but rejection of Ahad makes one an innovator who will go to hell first eventually, but go to paradise and but not smell its fragrance. So, wow, this is interesting. It's really interesting. So yeah. they said you cannot reject Mutawatir Hadith. Yeah. Um, so, well, no, they you can't reject either, but they differentiate. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> one makes you a non-Muslim. Wow. Wow, that's interesting. Like, that's, I didn't know that. That's new. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah. The Ash'ari and the Maturidi, they state that Ahad Hadith are not used in Aqeedah, um, but both the, those that are Mutawatir in meaning and wording are. So there's two ways to be Mutawatir. So one is that, um, let's just say, I'll, I'll just make up a number to be a large number. 40 companions heard it in that wording from the Prophet, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And then they narrated it to, you know, this many people narrated. So, you know, you know, 200 years later, whether you're in um, Russia or Iraq or China, you have the same exact wording from that hadith, right? Those are rare. Um, um, if, you know... So then, but the Mu'tazila, which you mentioned the Hizb tahrir they get this belief um, from the Mu'tazila that only Mutawatir in wording um, can be used in Aqidah. And that's why they reject mm. punishment in the grave and um, these other things. Um, they believe that Hadith that are Ahad or Mutawatir in wording, um, or, I'm sorry, in meaning, can be used in Fiqh, but not Aqidah not creed, not theology. I just um, looked it up just out of curiosity what the number would be for Mutawatir. And it says, according to Ibn Hajar al-Asqalani, the number is unspecified. <laughs> yeah, there's there's so there's a difference of opinion. Like, and it's, it's I kind of, there's certain things in Usul al-Fiqah, um, Mutawatir and Ijma', which is consensus. At times, when you really look at all the different, um, opinions it almost becomes i'm not gonna say it, it does become but mm -hmm. oftentimes claims become more theoretical than practical right there are some practical you know for example who, like what do you mean um i, I can't think of a good example okay. but i don't like when reading texts that you know like someone will say it's matt on this mm -hmm. and then you really look into it and there's really not an edge it's just all the scholars you agree with said it Mm, Ijma uh, means consensus, just in yeah, case someone's wondering. Yeah. A lot of a lot of Arabic words you have to remember to define them. Yeah, <laughs> and that's a whole other topic, so we're really not going to get into it today. But uh, if anyone's plug, I do teach Usul al fiqh classes, and I do like ten minutes a week on YouTube where I just put a snippet. You know, so right now we're on the chat, um, the Sunan Hadith. The next chapter will be Ijma. So anyone who's interested in learning more can, you know. Um, watch my weekly videos uh yes do check out the Fulus's channel if you're interested in this topic uh for sure and he's been a good guest and uh dealing with all of my questions <laughs> i've been throwing at him so i appreciate that thank you no uh, you're so the most you're the most respectful of uh i would say you. Some people who've thrown uh questions um you know so 
you know, I don't worry. And I'm also not going to have the ones that I don't know. Yeah. So, and this is my channel. So yeah. I'm, you know, I can like say stuff about Islam yeah. if I want to, but, but yeah, I appreciate that you've, you've taken it like a champ, you know, and uh, like uh, one of the comments earlier from, uh, where is it? If I can find it, Abdurrahman was somebody said that, um, you know, I appreciate that you coming here and defending Islam, you know, going out of, you know, it's tough to do that. Right? It takes some balls, so to speak. So, yeah, that's, that's good, you know. And um, one more comment. Uh, he was saying as well that MBS also, Mohammed bin Salman says you can't, wait, I missed the hadith. Oh, here we go. He said most, I don't know why he's making fat, fatawa, usul of fiqh issues now, but said most hadith can't be used for just judicial purposes. Interesting. Is that yeah. like, have you heard this? I I think I listened to something about that. I had like I haven't listened to him directly. I know the statements um have made its way around. Um and it's something I did want to look more into and research because you know I want to know what he means. Because like I said, sometimes I felt that with both Yasser Qadi and Hamza Yusuf, whether you like them or dislike them. I do feel people have jumped on them before they've totally understood what they've said often. Um, so uh, there's a couple of comments that are annoying me that I just want to deal with. So let's just deal with them. Okay, okay. let's just go with this one. Why would the Furus join a religion that's only for the Arabs? <laughs> what? <laughs> Where, where did you get that idea? Do you want to just say something? <laughs> no, okay. This this is this isn't there's nobody no Muslim says Islam is just for Arabs. Islam is for everybody, okay? Like there's no there's no limitation that says only Arabs. Even at the time of Muhammad, there was like Salman al Farisi, he's a famous companion. Abdullah bin Salam, uh, Salam the Jewish convert. I mean, yeah. come on, Bilal al Habashi, the um ethiopian yep yeah so <laughs> this is silly me, you know uh okay here's another one uh, i'm sorry for saying for bringing this up but i, I think it's worth talking. this guy looks so depressed when expressing spin too much takia i haven't heard any takia everything he said if i didn't agree i asked him about it and he explained it i don't there's no takia where, where is this coming from why why does everybody have these conspiracy theories He's coming here to talk about his religion. Obviously, I don't agree with him, but it's it's a good presentation he's doing. And where's the takia? Okay, if you want to have some specific example of takia, go for it. But he answered all the questions. Oh, there was another question. Oh, you can if you want to talk about this before I, I, I get annoyed with this takia thing because I know I, it's. I've I've always hated that one. And the thing is, is I learned that, and almost every Muslim I know has learned that term. From the non-Muslims, non <laughs> like you know, you know, when we we started coming out, you know, people are practicing taqiyya and this and that. We were like, "What is you know, what is that?" And it's like one of those things when like some people aren't Muslim, come on and say, you know, this is what you believe. Like, what do you mean? Like, like I actually, you know, he's he's an atheist, but I like, and we might disagree on certain things, but I like his approach, Matt Dillahanty, where he's always like, "Tell me oh. what you believe and why." Right? Did you, did you talk to him, or you talk about his talk, I've, I've listened. Okay. Um, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I, I like him too. He's a little bit aggressive at times, but he's he's cool. I like him. He had a big impact on me too in terms of being atheist. Um, there's one more question which is now gone, which is actually um, 
is the lines of the I can't find it now, but it's something to the effect of is reliance of the traveler uh, a reliable book to study, something like that. I'm for Shafi Fiqh um, to get a basic. The answer is yes. Um, to use a term I grew up with that might not be as Islamically appropriate, but we used to say it, when, you know, to, to take it as gospel, like we used to say um, growing up, you know, but to take it as the absolute truth, um, you know, the answer would be, you know, like, no, it's, it's, just, it's, in, so it's called an intermediate text. So in, you know, a lot of the FIPA, you go with a basic text and then you go to intermediate. Then you go um, with a more advanced text that gets into. So this the, is a basic text you said? No, intermediate. 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 What does that mean? I've, I haven't heard this before. Okay. Basic, so, intermediate, advanced. So when, if you're going to go study, let's say Islamic law, like with a sheikh, right? So the first text you're going to be doing is going to be a very like thin book. It might be like this, you know, mm-hmm. where it's simple, one opinion of the madhab, no evidence, no details, you know, just learn this. Um, then you might get into intermediate, which gets, you know, some more details. Um, and then when you get into the advanced text, let's say of a medhab, they'll go into what are the differences of opinion in the medhab. Um, and then okay. you got the level four, then they'll go, what are the proofs? And I'll say a level five is then you'll look at comparative where you look at it across the board, you know, the different with that, like all the different with that heads and what's their approach. <clears throat> You're going to take it like levels one to five. It's, you know, if I do a math term, like you start off with addition and subtraction, <laughs> right. You know, and eventually you get up to, you know, calculus or higher. So, so when you said, when you earlier said um, Hadith, you know, they used to consider that layman should not read it. What about thick manuals? Do laymen read thick manuals? Should they read thick manuals? So I think a lot of classically, uh, I mean, that would be basically what you learned um, as a kid. Um, it would be the basic thick manuals. And then like, you ba- you know, the average person then just goes practices, right? Like, okay, this is what I was told and they don't go any further. Um, but then when you get into the more like, you know, students of knowledge would get into the more um, advanced stuff. A lot of times private reading um, was discouraged just because um, that, that that's a, has a historical um, aspect to it. Um, there ended up being, um, you know, so many, there ended up being so many different interpretations at one time that, it, you know, that this got codified. So it's not an easy answer, but it's a general answer. Mm. Okay. All right. So um, does that cover the Hadith then? Uh, I just had about, a, I had two more like. Okay, go ahead. Yep. So in, um, in Usul uh, al there's something called conflict of evidences, right? So one text says A, the other text says B. What like, you know, uh, what do we do, right? So there's um, about seven different routes, and there might be more than seven, but these are seven basic routes that um, scholars took. So one is a purpose-based approach versus a literalist approach. 
So the purpose-based approach was, you know, what was the reason behind this? And then trying to apply, you know, seeing if there's a context. So instead of just saying one abrogates the other, you know, like what's the purpose? So there's, they called the the Maqasid, the objectives of the law, the preservation of religion, preservation of life, et cetera, et cetera. Um, Then there's contextualization. So sometimes, you know, people will say, well, this is a contradiction or this is an abrogation. But when you really go into the details, there were two different scenarios. And so both texts could still apply based upon that scenario. Um, so then there's conciliation, right? So, or, and harmonization. When you get two texts that seem to be contradictory, um, but then you could then you make them both fit. So I'll give you um, an example. Uh, there's hadith about whoever touches their um, private organ should make wudu. There's another hadith that's also authentic that says you don't need to, right? Um, and so what? Uh, so Ibn Ibn Taymiyyah, um, in resolving this, used conciliation or harmonization when he said basically, if you touch it regularly, you know, you don't. But like, if you touch it with a, a desire, right? And I'm not going to get you know further. <laughs> then, then it does. Um, you know, another approach to conflicts of evidence was abrogation, right? Um, now there are scholars like Muhammad Al Ghazali, uh, Jasser Auda, who don't believe in abrogation, um, and I think you know that's also a reaction because some people went to an extreme in abrogation where they basically said. 9.5 abrogates 129 different verses, right? Like, uh, so I, th- I see both as both ends of the extreme. Uh, then choice, and this this is a principle of Imam Ahmed, which I absolutely love. If there were two conflicting hadith, such as the two with the, um, that we just discussed, he said, you know, they're both authentic, pick your choice. Yeah. <laughs> Did um, he actually said that? I mean, not the way I said it, but... He, he said, I love that too. This is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Just pick one. <laughs> yeah. And so like, you know, that was something I really loved about the, the Hanbali school was that principle um, in the classical Hanbali school. Um, the other is preference. So with those hadith, Imam Shafi'i preferred the one that said, if you touch it, you do. Whereas Imam Abu Hanifa preferred the <laughs> one that said, is it a part of you? Meaning that you don't have to make will do. And then the last would be rejecting both. That's probably, that's <laughs> the rarest. I say, we really can't come to a conclusion, so we're not going to use either of <laughs> And the last topic I just wanted to talk about one minute is Matin criticism. Yeah. Now, Matin, we said, is the text of the Hadith. So hold on, hold on. There's a question I want to bring up before we get to yeah. the next one, which was a very good question. I'm sure you know, you'd have an answer for it, which is, um, yes, here it is. How did Muslims know what to do before the collection of ahadith? What's the general take? So um, before the collection, and that's a great question. Before the canonization, I guess he means. Yeah, so yeah. So before that, um, basically, there were companions in different cities. So the Prophet Muhammad, um, it's believed that he died with 100,000 companions. Um, but out the the amount he gave permission to teach were very were very few, um, and so 
they had sent the, some of these that the Prophet some gave permission to teach to different cities, and then they established students. So when you actually look at the Hanafi school, you actually can see the influence of the companions in that city. When you study the Maliki school, you can really see the um, influence of um, Abdullah ibn Omar. Um, when you study them, the Shafi'i school and the like each school, you can see the influence of the companions because the companions had certain different interpretations um, that you know the Prophet وسلم, allowed um, in some instances. And then, you know, so the schools really, you know can really trace themselves back to the companions who had went uh, yeah. there. And so, and that's actually a great thing because Islam was basically learned, you know, one, like from one person, you know, to the other um, before that. Uh, yeah. And so the last thing to touch on is Hadith and then yeah. we're gonna open it up to Q and A um, is Matin criticism. So a text can actually have a good chain and still not be accurate. Now, this is not the norm, it's rare, um, but it does happen. And so in order for a text of hadith to be considered sound, and these four principles were laid down by um, Ibn Qayyim al-Jawziyah, uh, and I can you know, give the book later if needed to look up, but uh, one is it shouldn't contradict a regularly known sunnah. So if we know, if we have a hadith, let's say that's two rakat, uh, two units of prayer before the dawn prayer, and there's one that says, like, you're going to do 26 units of prayer before the dawn prayer. You know, when everyone knows it's too, you know, like that would be. The other is it shouldn't contradict historical facts and events or naturally observed scientific facts. Um, and so this is something that could change over time, which is why Matin criticism wasn't supposed, the door was never supposed to be closed. I mean, Ibn Abbas has a statement, I believe it's in Tafsir al-Qabri, um, if I'm, my memory is correct, where he says, you know, there's some verses of the Quran that we will not understand until time passes. Um, the third is it shouldn't establish, um, it should not contradict um, established Sharia principles. Um, and four, it should not contradict the Quran. That being said, people do differ over what contradicts the Quran and what doesn't in all transparency. And I guess that's, you know, um, wrapped up the main points. Yeah. So my question, and just uh, Daisy Neo, a friend of mine, says thanks to the speaker for sharing all this amazing info. My issue with some of this stuff is, um, let's talk about the not contradicting the Quran. So stoning, stoning the adulterer, that contradicts the Quran. The Quran says lashing. So how do you, but Sunnis say that, nope, this is stoning, the not majority, lashing. The vast, vast, vast majority. There is a, if you read in um, Bidayat Mujtahid, uh, it's translated in English as the Distinguished Juris Primer. Mm -hmm. um, there is a minority opinion within Sunni Islam that um, it is lashing, but yeah, it is the majority position. Um, the and the argument is, you know, so the argument for the minority position is exactly what you said. The argument for the majority <laughs> position is they feel the hadith is mutawatir in meaning. Okay. Mm, I see. Okay. So, is it possible though? I mean, how do you how do you ever have? 
what type of what hadith would you have that contradicts the Quran? I'm trying to think of an example. That was the example I thought of. I can but... think of a clear. I can think of an example. Okay. Um, you know the Quran says you know the heavens and earth were created in six days or six periods of time. You know, depending upon how you you know choose to understand that. Um, there's a hadith that states and the, the chain well actually, um, imam muslim considered it the chain to be authentic but imam bukhari did not consider the chain to be authentic um but states that um you know basically that, that there were seven days of creation and then goes on to give a different order in the seven days of creation um that's in the quran so the chain you know some consider um you know authentic but another we can get back to is the Hanafis considered that hadith we said earlier um, about the death penalty hadith for murder um, only applying to Muslims to be a contradiction of the Quran. So in the Hanafi school, they viewed it that way. Oh, yeah. I just thought of another hadith, which is interesting, which says that um, the, punish, the, the, the sins of the Christians and the Jews that's another would be, would be put on to the sorry the Muslims the sins of the Muslims we put on the Christians and Jews in the hellfire or something like that yeah and and, and that's another one that's disputed because of Matin criticism that they feel this know. Matin criticism thing is great I think there should be more of it the only problem is it like when you say you know for example does not contradict historical facts and events it it seems to be the case that if Muhammad was mistaken, we would just cancel out the hadith, right? Wouldn't that be because there's no other way around it? Now, say for example, there's a hadith that says the sun goes into a milky pool. I mean, that literally went in a milky pool. Now, either it's a miracle or it contradicts science or it contradicts history. We would just throw it out. And I know Shabir Ali. I don't know if you know Doctor Shabir Ali. He is a big proponent of this. He is like I remember back in the nineties. When I was still Muslim, hearing him say this, that if there's a hadith that goes against, it's like, you know, gives some sort of extreme reward that doesn't make any sense. Like you, there's an example, you look at your mom with love, you get the reward of a hajj or something like that. He's like, you throw it out, right? He's like, and, and he gave him a bunch of other things. So he was throwing out hadith left, right, and center to the point where he doesn't even believe in stoning. He says stoning is not part of Islam, you know, and so on and so forth. He's, he's like more selective about hadith a lot more selective about hadith in a way it's good but in a way your islam it changes islam right from traditional orthodox sunni islam they don't do they don't typically do that well in and right. traditional well, that's where matin criticism came from is traditional orthodox islam okay yeah at some point um for historical reasons the doors like to ijtihad in a lot of places were closed and it's like, we're, we're not going, we're just going to, you know, you know, everything's been done, you know, except for brand new issues and just whatever the people of the past, um, you know, conclusions they came to, we're accepting it. And, you know, it was done at the time for political and religious unity. But at the same time, you know, any extreme leads to and equal and opposite negative extreme, right? So when you close thinking, right, you close education, you, you may bring about unity temporarily, but you also shut down education. And some, I think some of the problem, like, and that's why I 
you know, I say usul over rulings because to me, the principles of the schools of law are more important than the rulings of the school of law. And especially for modern Muslims, and I say modern Muslims, people living in this time, in that like, if we were to apply these um, usul and understand them, I feel that the Muslim world would be a better place, um, in my opinion. Now, people don't have to agree with me, and that, that's fine. But like, and to me, I can. I'm passionate about usul al fiqh because uh, I think it's, in my opinion, the most important topic for Muslims and non-Muslims to know about Islam. If we're going to live in a world together, that's just not always, you know yelling, fighting, screaming, you know, coexist, but to really have a deeper understanding. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm just going to share a comment from the chat. And since we thank you for completing the presentation and I appreciate it. Um, I don't know if you would probably disagree or di agree with this. That it seems that Islam is epistemologically light years beyond Christianity and analyzing the key texts. What do you think about that? Uh, it depends. I mean, I, I I don't like to make general statements like that. I think that I think that our classical usul is more advanced than the classical Christian usul. But I think the historical criticism methods with the Bible are more advanced. Yeah, historical I... criticism methods with the Quran, and I feel also with the historical methods with the Quran is there's large inherent biases and it, it seems like everyone just has to throw out something new and it just catches before anyone analyzed whether it logically makes sense or it's logically true or there's another explanation. And it actually kind of ties into what I think about Matin criticism is that I don't think that this should be the first resort. It should be the last resort, like, you know, that you should exhaust way like different ways to um, understand something um, before just rejecting. So I got into a conversation with someone on my channel today um, where they were stating um, a hadith where Aisha said that um, uh, you know uh, whoever does not. Um, so whoever said the Prophet وسلم, knows what will happen tomorrow is a liar. And I brought up, you know, and said, see, how can, like, how can you believe that the Prophet made any prophecies of this and that? And I first broke down, well, what Nabi means linguistically, you have to start with that. I was like, you know, you start with their fundamental verses of the Quran, which just has to be understood. You have to understand the Quran makes predictions, and they all knew this. And I said also, I said, let's look at it this way. I was like, if your friend told you, they don't know what they're doing tomorrow, but on Sunday they're going to a wedding and Monday they're going to work, would you say that's a contradiction? Like, no. you know, linguistically, if I say I don't know what's going to happen tomorrow, that doesn't mean I don't know anything that's ever going to happen in the future, right? I mean, we mm -hmm. can calculate that the sun is going to eventually grow and eat our earth, yeah. right? <laughs> you know, so uh, do, can I what? can I tell you the exact date that that will happen? No. You know, and so like I brought up the way that it's it's a very easy, and, and not only have I done this with Islam, I've done this with Christianity too, to be fair, and I'll give you an example. Um, 
but I also said, look, if if I'm going to let, like I I approach, you know, like I think, um, well, I'll start example Christianity. There's um, some people can there's Jesus gave a particular sermon, and some people feel the gospels contradicted because one person said he was here, one person said he was there, and but if you actually go to that geographical region, you can actually see depending on where you were standing, you know, if he was there and gave that sermon. Like, yeah, I would be like one person might have said, you know, he's on a hill. Other person might have said he's on a valley. I'm just making this up because I don't okay. know the details. Yeah. If you go to the exact spot where that sermon was supposed to happen, if you're actually yeah. standing on like higher spot on the hill, it'll look like yeah. he's the valley. If you're standing in the valley, it looks like he's on the hill. Yeah. But like, I, I think that you should apply the principle of non-contradiction before the principle of contradiction. Right. Like you like look for a way. Um that they vote because, I mean, if Aisha narrated that in the Prophet Sallallahu she obviously knew that the word Nabi linguistically means someone who tells future mm. events, right? So if he's yeah. called Nabi Muhammad, yeah. he's called someone who predicts future events. Yeah, say, yeah. They, yeah, he's a prophet, right? Say he doesn't know what will happen tomorrow. Well, yeah. he doesn't know exactly what will happen tomorrow. And just like in the Bible, in Mark chapter 13, verse 32, Jesus, some states, you know, no one knows the day or hour, not the angels in heaven, nor the son, but God, the father only. Right. So, you know, it's and I, I look at this in the same way, you know, like Jesus saying he don't know the exact date. The problem I'm saying he don't know the exact date, you know, and I'm like and I'm not a prophet, but I'm here. I'm telling you like that scientifically, the sun is going to grow until it eats our earth. In what I think they estimate, um, I'm, I can't remember how many years, but we mm -hmm. can't tell you the exact day. It's like we're not going to say it's going to happen, you know, October eighth, year one hundred and seventy million at you know at seven forty three p.m. Like we just well, know. Yeah. yeah. So about this question, just like just so we can end it off because it, it is getting a little bit long. Um, I would say what I've noticed, and this is just my reflections, that Muslims how do i say this muslims that try to go against the standard narrative tend to get in big trouble there's examples of people like abu zaid in egypt that you know have come up with theories let's say they said something to the effect of muhammad was able to read and write just just an opinion mm -hmm. they get they get in big huge trouble for saying these things to the point where like abu zaid i don't know exactly what he said but he was he was a Muslim. He wasn't an ex-Muslim or anything. He was a Muslim. He was just like, I, I want to bring about, you know, whatever he believed. He was just sharing it. And they kicked him out of the country. They divorced his wife from him. Legally, she was divorced, even though he still stayed with her. Um, and so on and so forth. So there's, there's like, it's tough for Muslim academics because unless they're in Western countries like Harvard or Yale or something where they're like safe and protected, they can say whatever they want. It's a challenge. The Muslim world doesn't like critical scholarship on the Quran. They don't like it. So that's that's a challenge because the the dog, the the Molvis, the the sheikhs that are are the ones that are controlling the the discourse, and they don't they're not letting it change. They don't want any any you know. So that to me is my reflection, personal reflection. When when you talk about Christianity, you don't have that issue in Christianity at all. Like Christians openly criticize and and you have scholars like Yasir Qadi say things like, 
you know, at Harvard, not Harvard, at Yale, I had problems. I had questions. I had gaps in my my iman. I had problems with some of the things because, and Noman Ali Khan and others have said the same thing that you know they deconstruct Islam, and when they put it back together, you don't know how to put it back together anymore because. You've seen like you've seen things, you've heard things that you you were never exposed to. Most Muslim scholars don't talk about, for example, the Shia Sunni conflicts, like the 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 battle of Aisha fighting the Ali. You know, like they don't they don't talk about these things. And there's other things too, like the, you know. So so my my answer to that question is it's the opposite. I think Christian um, critical analysis on the Bible is way ahead of the Quran. Saudi Arabia has hidden and is not allowing people to actually study the anthropology. I mean, not the, the geology and to like, they, they've shut it down. You know, they don't let, they don't give you access to the prophet's grave or anything like that. So um, my, in my opinion, Christianity is ahead of Islam, but that's because in terms of critical analysis, but that's because it's also an older religion and you know, the reformation and the secularization and all of that, it's had more time to go through that process, but Islam is still a little bit younger and still, you know, so that's my take on that. Yeah, and, and I, I, I could say though, it's shockingly, for better or worse, I feel light years ahead of what it was twenty years ago. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. Twenty-five years ago, um, you know, and I think twenty-five years from now, you know, intellectually, you know, we're going to, you know as an ummah be at a new place. Um, and so, you know, I, I do see it moving in a positive direction. I don't think, you know, as, you know, fast as everyone wants. And some things I don't think should move as fast because I do think that, you know, within the current Islamic criticism, uh, you know, people just throw out new theories. Like, I, I, I'm not, I, or I'd say hypotheses. I don't like, I wish, you know, we had a common definition of theory versus hypothesis because, you know, it means different things in different contexts, but different hypotheses, which, you know, people run, you know, see so-and-so said this about Islam. And I was like, well, you know, let them peer review it, give it 25 years and, you know, we'll discuss it. And then, you know, new discovery is made and then people, you know, oh, well, maybe this was right after all, or maybe this wasn't as wrong as we thought. And I just think that there's right now, it's too much like, all right, let's just come up with the, the newest and latest idea in critical study, as opposed to, you know, following the evidence where the evidence leads. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yep. So um, I, I want to uh, close this off now and I want to give you the chance to share any last words. Thank you for doing the presentation and going to, all of this. I don't think we really have time now to go into questions. I know there's a couple of topics that I had discussed with you ahead of time, like so based on some of the videos you made. Uh, one of them was Islamic finance. The other one was women's rights in Islam. But there's no time for that. And I don't want to start that, you know, after two hours, you know, one hour 50 of talking to you. I don't want to start talking about <laughs> Islamic finance and women's rights. There's no time for that. So, so any last words from you? You want to share anything where people can find you, your channel, stuff like that, and uh, any thoughts on you know what I said? A anything else? You know. So, well, first off, I want to thank you um, for having me, and uh, you know, you commented on you know how you felt that you know I'm brave for coming on here, um, you know, to discuss 
with you. Um, and I actually feel equally your brave, and I sent this to you in a private email, but I'll say it publicly, that you know, when I saw last week when you had a, a Muslim on and I saw you know, how some people reacted in the comments so negatively towards him and towards you for having them, I said, you know, like you're brave and courageous because I do feel that there are some people that like just want to see you bash Islam as opposed to actually have conversations, you know, about Islam and, you know, you might piss off those listeners. Um, so, you know, I would like to thank you for having me. My channel for anyone who's interested um, in following me um, is called Experience Islam with the Farus. If you just put into your YouTube search the Farus, you know, it will... It's linked below as well. Oh, yeah. It's, it's yeah, linked, it's linked below. below yeah. mm -hmm. um, and so I am doing 10-minute uh, weekly usul al-fiqa videos that are get way... They're going to get way more into detail than what we discussed here for anyone who's interested. Um, I also do some videos that people ask me to do. Some I like, some I don't. But, you know, sometimes you just, you know, have to do what people want and uh you know and so i'm also going to be starting a section um on a, one of the books i wrote years ago you know so i've had books that were published i'm not going to plug any of them but um you know they were published under my real name not my youtube screen name but uh i was working on one that was actually bought by a publisher but never published and it was you know it has um I'm going to do certain misconceptions of Islam where I'm actually going to take, uh, you know, controversial questions um, that also are part of the, you know, what I call the, um, the, pro the way of looking at them of the Protestant Islam and look at them more traditionally and linguistically and how they were understood because some of these um, what I call Protestant Islam don't, doesn't make any sense. And I'll just give you an example. So um, there's something, you know, you know, Islam is a religion of hate. And they'll, you know, quote some, you know, text from the Quran that say hate. But in traditional, it's not, not really translated, but in traditional understanding, there's natural hatred and legislated hatred. They're two totally different things emotionally. We don't have a concept in English of legislative hatred. And then the same thing with love. And in like, so for example, the Quran gives, uh, you know, Muslim men the um, permission to marry Jewish and Christian women of um, that have never um, committed zina. And, and so if they're like, if you have to hate them with the natural hate, you know, so what do you say to your wife before you go to bed? If she's um, Jewish or Christian, I hate you instead of I love you. Like, no, I can't like, so, you know, but some of these simplistic conclusions that people come to like are just um, due to lack of understanding of, you know, language or whatever. And I'm not using the excuse, like, cause I do know some people use this excuse for like everything. You don't understand Arabic. In some yeah. cases it's true. And in some cases, it's total nonsense. There are some words that can be directly translated into English. And there are yeah. some words that can, or there's some words that are whole concepts that needs explanation. 
Um, or there's some words that don't have an equivalent, but like we just got to be honest about which can be directly translated, which cannot. And I, you know, I, I just think that we're at a, a place now where people are thrown into defensive extremes. So like one group says Islam is a religion of perpetual, perpetual warfare. The next group says, you know, Islam is a religion of peace. And people ask me, I say, well, Islam is a religion of peace, military service, treaties, and trade. And all of them are applicable depending upon the situation. And all of them exist in the text. If you don't just take one text and exclude all the others, like mm. you, know, you look at a, you know, if there's a hundred pieces to a puzzle, you don't look at one and say, you know, see, and I used the example before, you know, I could pick out a verse in the Bible and say, David was an atheist. See, he said, there's no God. If I just cover the words, only fools say, mm. you know? Yeah, that, that would be unfair uh, quote mining i guess not even it's not even a full quote um i would actually maybe disagree with you on a lot of the things you're saying um, but we don't have time to get into that um i personally do think the quran is hateful and uses a lot of dehumanizing rhetoric against non-muslims we don't have time to talk about that um and again you you know maybe one day we can have an actual conversation on some of these topics today the, today the topic wasn't about whether islam is true or not it was like you said it was the idea was to go through some of the uh, fic because this is a passion of yours a personal passion something you've studied and uh so we did you know i did challenge you on a few things but that wasn't the point of the show today so thank you for coming uh for anyone that's interested you know do check out his channel and um, we'll see you guys at the next live stream, which is going to be with Abdullah Gondal. We're going to be doing the Epileptic Prophet Part 3, Farid and his cousin destroyed. So do join do join us. And uh, and uh, thanks, uh, the Falus, for joining as well. And uh, stay in touch. We'll uh, maybe do, an, do this again sometime. Okay. I would love right. it. Good night, everyone.